I'm Tracy Sable. Tonight on EWTN News Nightly, the next chapter. I'm no longer the young man sitting in the back hoping colleagues would remember my name. It's time for the next generation of leadership. Kentucky Senator Mitch McConnell makes a stunning announcement on Capitol Hill. We have a report and reaction. Annual physical. President Joe Biden meets with doctors for a checkup amid his re-election campaign. Holy Father's health. After his Wednesday talk to pilgrims, Pope Francis heads to the hospital for tests. We have a report from the Vatican. And baby steps. A pro-life measure in West Virginia clears an important hurdle. These stories and more tonight. From EWTN, the Global Catholic Network, this is EWTN News Nightly. Thank you for being with us. Our top story tonight, Kentucky Republican Senator Mitch McConnell, the longest serving Senate leader, announced today on the floor that he plans to step down as the minority leader come November. I'm filled with heartfelt gratitude and humility for the opportunity. But now it's 2024. I'm now 82. As Ecclesiastes Estes tells us, to everything there is a season and a time to every purpose. To say this will be my last term as Republican leader of the Senate. I'm not going anywhere anytime soon. However, I'll complete my job. My colleagues have given me until we select a new leader in November and they take the helm next January. And that was Mitch McConnell speaking earlier today. Let's bring in Capitol Hill correspondent Eric Rosales now with the very latest news. So, Eric, did this come as a surprise? Well, yes, it certainly did, Tracy. Good evening. You know, however, in recent months, Senator Mitch McConnell has said that he's been considering this move, and even some Republicans have been very critical of his leadership and wanted him to step aside. He doesn't usually show much emotion. He's very stoic up here on Capitol Hill, but on the floor this afternoon, as you saw and you heard, his voice started cracking and even teared up a little bit. You may recall that he's had several health scares up here on Capitol Hill, and the most recent one was last summer when he froze up in mid-sentence on camera. But lately, McConnell really hasn't been in line with the Republican conference. Uh, He survived a leadership change from Senator Rick Scott, but uh, he has yet to endorse former President Donald Trump, who is on his way to become the Republican presidential nominee. Even the latest bills to fund the government, McConnell wanted to get border security in them, but then backed away, and that upset a lot of senators up here on the Hill. One thing McConnell does do well is read the tea leaves up here. And he felt that it was time to step away and end his Senate run, which he's been doing since 1985. Ronald Reagan was president back then. Tracy. All right. Quite a career, Eric. Thank you so much. Don't go anywhere. We're going to come back to you momentarily uh, with the other big story on the Hill today. But first, let's get some more insight on Mitch McConnell's announcement today. For that, we're going to bring in Matthew Green. He is a professor of politics at the Catholic University of America. Professor, great to be with you again. We appreciate it. Uh, a, A lot of people... We're actually shocked, though, by this Mitch McConnell's announcement today that he's stepping down uh, at the end of the year. But as we did hear from Eric, it maybe wasn't that much of a surprise to others, considering factors like his age, his recent health episodes and what we've been seeing playing out in the Republican Party these days. I want to get your thoughts on that. Sure. Well, I certainly was taken aback. I didn't expect it uh, to come. Certainly not today. But as you, uh, you know, as you heard from your correspondent, 
Um, Senator McConnell's very good at reading the tea leaves. And I think it's not just where his party is. I think it's also um, maybe a sense that, um, you know, that he's got, you know, he does have, um, you know, he's getting older. There may be some health issues there that he's not disclosed. Um, and I think also what makes it unusual is that, it, you know, the odds are better than even that Republicans will win control of the Senate in 2024, in which he would be the majority leader. So if the fact that he doesn't want to be majority leader suggests either uh, there's other issues or being a majority leader with the possibility of either um, either Biden or Trump as president maybe is not so appealing to him. Yeah. And what do you think this means for the GOP? And, and how do you think it's going to change the direction of the party, if at all? Well, I don't know if it's going to change the direction that much, but a lot will depend on who is chosen as his successor. Uh, and we've got a few candidates like uh, John Thune and others in leadership who are interested in the position. And, and it's a very important position. So when, once uh, whoever's in that uh, role as leader um, has a real power to either keep the party unified and even try to direct it uh, in terms of policy, um, or um, they can struggle. Uh, and as you heard, there are folks in the Republican Party who are unhappy with McConnell. Uh, some of them are conservatives who, um, who may give any person who's chosen as the successor some difficulty. And so uh, part of what happens with the Republicans in the Senate is going to be how the next leader deals with these internal divisions in the party. Yeah, that's very important uh, to keep in mind. Uh, Mitch McConnell, as you know, has really had a very long and illustrious career in the Senate. That said, what do you think uh, could possibly be his biggest accomplishment? And what type of legacy do you think he's leaving behind? Well, I think there's a number of things that um, he would certainly say were major accomplishments, not least of which uh, as the majority leader, when Republicans had a majority, steering through um, uh, conservative nominations to the federal judiciary, and in particular, the Supreme Court, um, and it's particularly the last two uh, Republican nominations to the Supreme Court, which created a, basically a 6-3 conservative majority, which will have a profound influence on uh, jurisprudence for many, many years. Um, those are, you know, some of his legacies. And I think also just the fact he lasted that long. It's very hard to be a party leader and to last that long. And he has the record of the longest serving uh, party leader, major or, uh, GOP or Democratic Party in the Senate in history. Uh, that itself speaks to his ability to read his party, to know how to lead his party, um, to deal with uh, challenges that he's had, uh, other folks running against him. Um, and insofar as that itself is, is an accomplishment, it's certainly a significant legacy that he leaves. Indeed it is. Professor Green, thanks so much for coming on. Always appreciate your insights. My pleasure. All right, now to that other top story from Capitol Hill. For months now, Hunter Biden said that he would only testify before Congress if it was in a public setting. But that all changed today. The president's son faced House lawmakers on both the Judiciary and Oversight Committees about his foreign business dealings and whether the impeachment inquiry into his father, President Joe Biden, should move forward. Let's check in with Capitol Hill correspondent Eric Rosales once again. Eric, what can you tell us? Well, I tell you what, Tracy, this full day of testimony came together after months of public sniping, political stunts, the threats of criminal contempt, and even hardball negotiations. In the end, Hunter Biden walked inside of a House office building and sat down to defend his father and his own business dealings with foreign governments. President Biden's son, Hunter, walked inside the House office building, accompanied by his attorney not speaking to the media. Hunter's appearance represents the most significant testimony to date for the two congressional committees leading the impeachment inquiry into President Joe Biden, a probe that's heavily focused on Hunter Biden's foreign business dealings. It comes a few months after Hunter defied lawmakers and disregarded a subpoena and instead held a 
a news conference outside the Capitol. There is no evidence to support the allegations that my father was financially involved in my business because it did not happen. The deposition comes as a key whistleblower who helped launch the impeachment inquiry has been discredited. A former FBI informant, Alexander Smirnov, alleged Ukrainian entities paid millions of dollars in bribes to Joe Biden and Hunter, and now faces federal criminal charges that he fabricated the story. Democrat Jamie Raskin tells me the GOP hasn't found any evidence of impeachable offenses. The whole investigation has the very strong whiff of a uh, Russian intelligence operation at this point, but we'll see what they've got to say with Hunter Biden. Both Congressman James Comer and Judiciary Chairman Jim Jordan, who are leading the impeachment inquiry, have tried to downplay the informant's influence. This investigation is about public corruption. Now, the American people do not want their public officials, families, to peddle access to their leaders to the tune of tens of millions of dollars. Others express their opinions. They'll do anything for Donald Trump. They'll debase themselves, they'll lie, they'll keep embarrassing themselves, and I think they're going to embarrass themselves again today. Anything, Congresswoman, on what you hope to expect, what you hope to hear today? The truth. The truth about the Biden crime family. What do you hope to hear I'm, today? I'm curious to see how many times Hunter Biden will perjure himself today, and also is he going to plead the fifth, because we all know he's going to lie. It is important to note that Congresswoman Nancy Mace made those comments before the hearing. Now, Hunter did not plead the fifth, at least during the first hour of testimony. We won't actually know the rest of his testimony until the transcripts are released, which both sides have pledged to do so quickly. And that could come as early as tomorrow to avoid media leaks. Hunter Biden also faces two federal criminal trials, one of which in California for tax-related charges, scheduled to start in June, and another in Delaware for lying on a gun application. At the Capitol, Eric Rosales, EWTN, News Nightly. All right, thank you, Eric. President Joe Biden is facing questions about his health. He made an unannounced trip to Walter Reed National Military Medical Center today for his annual physical. This comes after a recent report accused him of memory lapses. White House correspondent Owen Jensen reports. Owen. Tracy, good evening to you. Late this afternoon, the president's doctor released a statement saying, and I quote, the president feels well in this year's physical identified no new concerns, end quote. And earlier today, during an event here at the White House, while he was hosting police chiefs from around the country, I asked the president about his health directly. President Joe Biden walks past reporters at the White House to board Marine One, landing a short time later at Walter Reed National Military Medical Center, where doctors schedule the series of exams. Typically, the president's annual physical does not include a cognitive test. White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre adds... The president doesn't need a cognitive test. That is not my assessment. That is not my assessment. That is the assessment of the president's doctor. Uh, That is also the assessment of the neurologist. President Biden also faced questions about his health during a separate event about crime. How did your physical go today? Are you okay? Everything good? Anything concerning that Americans should know about, about your health? They think you look too young. How long? (laughs) Everything's great. All right. Big cities like Chicago have been plagued with crime in recent years, but President Biden says his policies are helping police departments reduce the violence. My administration is going to choose progress over politics, and communities across the country are safer as a result of that policy. There is no greater responsibility than to ensure the safety of families, children, communities, and our nation. 
President Biden also gets pushback over his handling of the war in the Middle East. Over 100,000 Democrats in Michigan protested yesterday's presidential primary by voting uncommitted. Michigan has the largest concentration of Arab Americans in the nation, and they're upset with the number of Palestinian deaths in Gaza. Now the question has to be to President Biden and his campaign, what will they do to heed the call of these people that have come out and said, we are a pro-peace, anti-war movement that wants our leaders to be better. And back to the president's physical, the report says, quote, he continues to be fit for duty and fully executes all of his responsibilities without any exemptions or accommodations. At the White House, Owen Jensen, EWTN News Nightly. And coming up later in the newscast, analysis of last night's Republican and Democrat primaries in Michigan. We'll have more on that for you. Another major story we are following, the health of Pope Francis as a surprise trip to a Rome hospital concerns Catholics all around the world. This after the 87-year-old Pope appeared clearly slowed down by a cold during today's general audience. EWTN Vatican Bureau Chief Andreas Tonhauser has more. Yes, some concerning news from the Vatican, Tracy. Shortly after his weekly general audience today, and without initial explanation, Pope Francis was taken to the Gemelli Isla Hospital on Rome's Tiber Island. A statement released by the Holy See Press Office later confirmed the visit and said he underwent diagnostic tests. Earlier, he had explained to the pilgrims gathered in the Paul VI Hall that he still had a cold, and he asked one of his collaborators, Monsignor Filippo Ciamponelli, to read the catechesis for him. This also followed a meeting with members of the Synod of Bishops of the Patriarchal Church of Cilicia of the Armenians, where the Pope had an aide deliver his prepared remarks as well. As you remember, Tracy, some scheduled papal audiences were canceled in the past days as a precautionary measure because the Pope was experiencing flu-like symptoms. And actually, this is not the first time that the Holy Father left the reading of his reflections to an assistant. At the end of November, in a few circumstances, he was unable to talk at any length. And in that case, the Pope was suffering from bronchitis that had particularly debilitated him. Here at the Vatican, we will continue to monitor the Holy Father's condition in the coming days. But in the meantime, something positive, the Holy See press office has confirmed the Pope will receive German Chancellor Olaf Scholz in an audience on Saturday, the 2nd of March, just as planned. In Rome, Andreas Tonhauser, EWTN News Nightly. And out of Moscow, where the funeral for Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny will take place on Friday. His spokesperson says that it will happen at a cemetery in an area of Moscow where he once lived. Mourners are invited to attend. But Navalny's widow is worried there could be arrests at the funeral. Yulia Navalny expressed her concerns during an address at the European Parliament today. She blames Russian President Vladimir Putin for her husband's death in an Arctic prison. Back here in the United States to the Texas panhandle now, where firefighters are trying to contain what has become the second largest wildfire in state history. One Texas resident compared the flames to Armageddon. It went from smoke billowing in that was white to then sunshine coming through that looked like we were engulfed in flames all around to then it got very dark and gray. And as we were leaving, we could turn around and it did. It looked like Armageddon. It looked like our town was just being engulfed in black and it was just disappearing right before us as we were walk driving. 
Well, authorities have not yet said how the fire started. The blaze is spreading thanks to dry conditions and strong winds. Governor Greg Abbott issued a disaster declaration for 60 counties. The main fire has grown to more than half the size of Rhode Island and is now five times the size it was when it first began on Monday. And we have a lot more still to come here on EWTN News Nightly, including breaking down the ballots, a deeper dive into the results of last night's Michigan primary, and an update on the future of IVF in Alabama as some Republicans attempt to protect the procedure. reported earlier, President Biden won Michigan's Democratic primary last night, but not all Democrats are on board with Biden. More than 100,000 Democrats, mainly Muslim and Arab Americans, voted uncommitted on the ballot in protest of the Biden administration's handling of the Israel-Hamas war. So what does that mean and what type of challenge could that present in November in a swing state as important as Michigan? Joining us now to talk more about last night's Michigan primary is Ryan Burge, political science professor at Eastern Illinois University and creator of the Graphs About Religion Substack. Ryan, great to be with you again. So help us unpack this uncommitted vote. What do you think that signals for President Biden, especially among the Muslim American community? Yeah, they're very active. They're very engaged. They're very involved in the political process. And by voting uncommitted, they're showing us two things. One, they care enough to actually show up during a low turnout primary, but two, they wanted to show Joe Biden they don't really approve of his stance in the Middle East right now. So what's gotta happen is he's gotta find ways to win these 100,000 voters back. Now, I will say, if you're an uncommitted voter in Michigan yesterday, it does not change the outcome of the election at all. Joe Biden's still gonna be the nominee, Donald Trump's still gonna be the nominee. Um, I think most of these 100,000 voters are gonna realize that voting for Joe Biden gets them closer their preferred policy over voting for Donald Trump, although some of them might stick to their guns and be ideological and either stay home on Election Day or vote for a third party candidate like Cornell West, let's say. Yeah, let's bring that up right now. I mean, how much of a factor do you think the third party candidates are going to be in Michigan? I think in Michigan, it matters more than other states because of this issue of the Muslim population. So Joe Biden won Michigan by about 120,000 votes uh, in 2020, which is a, a close election. Absolutely. Uh, the Muslim population in Michigan is about a quarter million, 240,000 or so. So you got to think how many of those votes can he lose and still win the overall popular vote? If Cornell West wins 25, 30,000 of these Muslim votes, that could be enough in a very close election for, you know, Donald Trump to win the state. Because all you have to do is win Michigan by one vote and you get all the electors in a very close election, that might be enough to swing the outcome. Yeah, we're going to be watching that very closely. I, I want to bring this up. Uh, Robert S. McCall, the Government Affairs Director of CARE, that is the uh, Council on American Islamic Relations, put out a statement uh, about the primary saying, quote, based on our exit poll and our interactions with Muslim voters, it appears that President Biden's unconditional support for the Israeli government's genocide in Gaza is likely playing a decisive factor in impacting his support within the Muslim and Arab American communities. Your thoughts on that? And even if Biden loses the Muslim vote there, could he still potentially win the state? Oh, absolutely. I mean, we got to think, too, like we said, 240,000 Muslims in the state. How many of them are actually eligible to vote? Because many of them have immigrated to America in their lifetimes and not become naturalized citizens yet. I mean, the actual voting population of Muslims in Michigan might be 100,000, right? So if you peel off 20, 30% of that vote, that in, might end up yielding 30 or 40,000 votes the other way. 
But again, Biden won by 120,000 votes. But what's overarching this whole conversation is turnout. There's still a lot of other voters in Michigan that are not Muslim. So, you know, this is this is going to be a high turnout election. We know that last time in 2020 was the highest turnout election we've had in generations. And it's the same two candidates. The stakes are higher in some ways. So for every reason we can believe there's going to be a lot more turnout across the board. And that might make the Muslim story a much smaller story on Election Day in terms of actual numbers of voters. Right. Almost out of time here. But quickly, before I let you go, uh, former President Donald Trump, uh, as you know, defeated Nikki Haley once again by really a pretty big margin there. However, despite that victory, it's reported that a solid one third of Republican voters in Michigan went someone else other than Trump. What does that indicate? I think that, you know, there's a solid contingent of never Trumpers inside the Republican Party. And I think there's a lot of moderates who voted in the Republican Party to vote for Haley against Trump to show Trump that there's some opposition to him. But when it comes right down to it, if you look at what happens in the general election, 95 percent of Republicans vote for Donald Trump. Ninety five percent of Democrats vote for Joe Biden. At the end of the day, the average Republican likes Trump more than they like Biden. So I think a lot of what we're seeing in Michigan yesterday was symbolic actions that won't really yield much difference when it comes to the general election and push comes to shove. All right, Professor Ryan Burge, thank you for unpacking all this for us. We always appreciate it. God bless. Thanks so much. Up next on EWTN News Nightly, must-see TV. Why students in West Virginia may soon be watching a pro-life movie in public schools. Plus, Pope Francis tells the faithful the answer to fighting two common temptations. France has approved a measure to enshrine abortion in the country's constitution. President Emmanuel Macron promised the measure following a series of pro-life laws that were enacted in the United States. The bill now goes before a joint session of parliament and is expected to be approved. France is around 47 percent Catholic. Our Republican lawmakers in the United States in Alabama are attempting to grant immunity to doctors who perform in vitro fertilization. In a rally outside the Alabama State House, one senator says the protections should be extended to patients. In our haste to make sure that we covered the industry, the doctors, the suppliers and things like that, we kind of have omitted the most important person in the process, and that's the patient. Well, the Republican governor has voiced support for the proposal. This follows Alabama's Supreme Court declaring that frozen embryos are unborn babies. The Catholic Church opposes IVF. Well, a new report says the number of monthly abortions in America is roughly the same since the overturning of Roe versus Wade. The difference is in how they are provided. According to the Pro-Abortion Society of Family Planning, from July to September last year, between 81,150 and 88,620 abortions took place each month. Just prior to the overturning of Roe v. Wade, the monthly average was around 86,000. Well, the study also finds that in the 14 states with a near total ban on abortion, almost no abortions are taking place, yet overall, far more abortion pills are now being prescribed through telehealth. While the state of West Virginia, their Senate has approved a measure requiring 8th and 10th grade students in public schools to watch a pro-life video put together by live action. This is Olivia. 
The video entitled Baby Olivia depicts the development of a baby through all stages of pregnancy. Live action founder Lila Rose says the video was made in consultation with doctors. Opponents of the bill say this could be a First Amendment violation of religious freedom. The proposal now heads to the State House of Delegates. Well, finally tonight, before leaving for the hospital and his round of tests, Pope Francis reminded the faithful that internal struggles can be solved by accepting the grace of God. Non dimentichiamo i popoli che soffrono a causa della guerra. At his weekly talk, the Holy Father spoke about the dangers of envy and pride. To fight them, he said, we should embrace our weaknesses and let God operate in our lives. Pope Francis also urged us to love one another with brotherly affection and to follow St. Paul's example of boasting of weakness rather than achievements. And we thank you for watching tonight. Remember, you can follow us on social media, Facebook, X, and Instagram at EWTN News Nightly. I'm Tracy Sable. Good night and God bless.